The Melting Pot. Hosted by Dominic Monkhouse. Hello, welcome. Uh, This is Dominic Monkhouse. Welcome to The Melting Pot podcast, where I get to sit down with experts in the world of business, uh, people who are doing things differently, pushing the boundaries. That's exactly what my first guest has been doing. Evgeny Shadnev, CEO at Maker's Mark, is definitely someone who's decided to throw the rulebook right out of the window. No sales commission, unlimited holiday, set your own salary, salary transparency. They do it all at Maker's Academy. There's a lot to talk about, so let's hear from the man himself. My name is Evgeny. I'm a founder and CEO of Maker's Academy and we are at our campus in East London. We do two things. We help complete beginners to learn how to code and get a job as a software developer. And we help companies to hire our software developers. So it's training and recruitment in one. We started in 2013, graduated, trained about 1,500 developers since then, and it's been quite a challenging ride. You're known for some unusual business practices. Uh, yeah. And what are some of those? The first one which comes to mind is that our staff set uh, their own salaries. We've uh, been doing it for about two and a half years, so roughly for half of our lifetime. And at first it seemed like a crazy idea, but it actually works. People set their salaries uh, following a fairly rigorous process of uh, getting feedback from all their colleagues and thinking about what they've achieved uh, in the last year, what they plan to do next year, compare it uh, to the market data, and uh, eventually take all this feedback into account and uh, uh, make a decision. Do you have salary transparency as well? Yes. Otherwise, it wouldn't really work without it, because in order to have a process where employees set the, the employees set their own salaries, they need to be able to have frank discussion about, well, we just hired that person for that position, and this is what they are doing, and we hired them on... 50k I should probably I'm doing the same job I should probably be on a comparable amount of money you can't really have this conversation if the payroll is uh, not open and how many people have you got 32 or 33 okay and when you did the transition Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago Mm -hmm. was that difficult or painful or no it uh, actually it was fairly straightforward we spent about half a year talking about it so before we made the transition it was uh we had a very long discussion inside the team about whether we would or should do it. So when we decided to go for it, it was not a surprise to anyone. It was, oh yeah, that's the thing we've been discussing to death for the, the last half a year. Initially, we expected a lot of people to go for it, but uh, quite the opposite uh, happened. In the first few months, only a few people changed their salaries using uh, this process. But one person did it, then another, then another, and uh, eventually the entire company uh, adopted uh, this new system. So it wasn't mandatory. You could no, it wasn't. You weren't going to get a pay rise unless you well, unless pre- you did it yourself. Well, yeah, pre- yes. pretty much. Okay, uh, which is uh, which is a horrible idea, I must say, because it led to some people being underpaid for uh, for a while. So I found myself. I've had a lot of conversations over the last couple of years along the lines of, "Hey, you should really be paid more." But I can't do it myself, even though I'm a CEO, because it goes against uh, our process. And you should go through the process and raise your salary. And the person would say, yes, yes, I I know, yes, I know it's been a while, but I'm really busy and it's difficult and I'll do it tomorrow. And then two months later, nothing gets done. 
So today we are expecting everyone to do it uh, on a yearly basis. And uh, today we also have uh, a head of people responsible for our internal culture and the team and uh, the salary process in particular. And uh, she is helping our uh, team to make sure the salary advice process happens on a uh, regular basis. Cynically, you could mm-hmm. think, well, how do you, if, if the only thing mm-hmm. that stops you getting mm-hmm. a pay rise is what your colleagues think, mm-hmm. if everybody banded together, then mm-hmm. you could be on this upward cycle of salaries mm-hmm. forever. It's not the only thing. And uh, the dynamic you're describing, probably in all honesty, was happening at times. But by and large, it hasn't been a concern. What we've seen is, uh, we've seen a slightly different effect. If you look at our payroll, or rather, when we ask an external consultant to come and take a look at our payroll uh, and compare it to the market, it told us that we are overpaying uh, junior stuff and underpaying senior stuff. So uh, what happened is basically that the payroll got a little bit compressed, a little bit more uh, egalitarian. If we were setting salaries using a normal process, I suspect the difference between the lowest paid and the highest paid employee would be more significant. Uh, you also do unlimited holiday. Did you did you make that change at the same time? Um, uh, roughly, but we never really had the limited holidays. Just we never thought about it. So ever since we started the company, we yes, we had twenty something days in the contract, but we we didn't really count them. Eventually, we've installed some HR software and we asked everyone to count how many days they are actually taking, but not to stop them, but just to understand what's going on. So it's not that we made this change, it's just, it's been natural. If you've got a person in the office who really needs a holiday because they are just having a difficult time or are really, really tired, and they are beyond their yearly allowance, what are you going to do? Force them to be in the office and pretend they are being productive? No, probably not. Uh, so it's been def- it's been unlimited de facto since uh, the beginning, or rather, a better term is uh, flexible. It's not unlimited in the sense that taking two hundred days per year is probably too unlimited, uh, but it's very flexible. So you're in a rare position where a you force people to try and get themselves to pay themselves more money, yep. and you also try and force people to take more time off. Which are two challenges that most CEOs don't face. uh, True. (laughs) And in some cases, we do have conversations along the lines of you really should take some time off. Uh, I recently realized uh, just a few months ago that one of the absolutely brilliant employees on the team haven't had a holiday longer than a week in literally years. And the reason is because the position is unique and uh, basically this person is the only person with this responsibility in the company. So taking holding means that there is no one else to cover the job. As a result, uh, this person uh, hasn't taken more than one week for uh, for a few years, and we had to sit down and have a conversation along the lines of, "Look, it's not your problem; it's the business problem to figure out how to how to cover it. But you should take uh, at least a couple of weeks uh, at, the, at the earliest opportunity." And also, on a side note, there are some interesting thing interplay between uh, salaries and uh, holidays. For example someone on the team is planning to fulfill a, uh, to fulfill a lifelong dream of uh, uh, traveling uh, South America for I think a month uh, in the summer. In most companies this would be uh, beyond the whole day allowance. We're okay with it and uh, but she understands that she would be away and uh, she does need the salary 
uh, to cover the whole day. Uh, so in her salary advice process, she described the situation and said that, okay, I'm not raising my salary as much as I would have if I didn't go on holiday, but I will also take a significant chunk of time in the summer to enjoy South America. And these two things are kind of connected. Yeah. And uh, we are okay with with this kind of flexibility and we are working hard to hire people who can make these kinds of decisions. How do you screen for that decision-making ability at, at interview? Uh, we focus a lot on values and uh, aptitude over skills. Mm -hmm. Skills can be learned, uh, values and aptitude less so, especially values. We are not trying to make a perfect decision during the interview process. Probation periods exist for a reason. Also, since the salary advice process is a, a yearly change, people don't do it in their first year of employment and one year is a hell of a lot of time to learn about each other. So we are not really trying to, to make a perfect decision in, uh, in a single interview. Having said that, yes, a lot of effort goes into into the interviewing process, of course. Another thing, by the way, another thing which helps, uh, whenever possible, we bring people in for half a day or a day in the office to see a day-to-day -day work and meet uh, as many people on the team as possible. For example, when uh, last year when I was hiring a uh, finance director, I asked uh, candidates, well, late-stage candidates on the shortlist to do a mini uh, audit of the, our finances. To, uh, to take a look and write a summary of uh, what we're doing well, well, what we're doing not so well. They had read-only access to all our uh, financial data. And uh, that was a great opportunity for them to learn what uh, the company is really like outside the context of a traditional interview. So basically, they were actually doing the job for one day. Giving them more context around accepting your offer if they go. Yes. Yeah. And that's another thing. One, uh, one candidate told me that if they had full access to, or full read-only access to uh, company financials before they joined, uh, talking about their previous employer, they wouldn't have joined them. <laughs> but that they learned uh, the full, let's say, they, they learned how difficult the situation was uh, only after they joined the company in the financial director capacity. I've had similar experiences mm -hmm. myself. Uh, one of the other mm -hmm. things that I know you do is you don't pay sales commission. Uh, we don't. And how's that, how's that working out for you? It's working out pretty well, actually. Although, a few months ago, about half a year ago, I started thinking that, actually, you know, we're not paying commission, but maybe it's not going to scale, and uh, some salespeople coming to the interview expect us to pay them a commission, and maybe we should start doing it. And so I went to the sales team and asked them, hey, what do you think about maybe introducing a commission? And the response was very, very strong, as an over-minded body. I'm going to quit. I, I'm not going to work here. If you, basically you're going to lose your sales team if you introduce the uh, commission because this is not why they joined. This conversation, series of conversations, helped me to realize that the reason everyone on the sales team is here is not because they are uh, going to make more money than at other companies. They are here because they are proud to do their job. They love what they are doing. They the like the product they are selling, they are proud to be able to say no to a difficult customer and not be penalized financially, and that they know they are judged not on how much money they make, but on how well they are solving the problems of our clients. We are in the business of helping people to get great jobs and helping companies to hire, uh, to hire great employees, so their number one KPI is how many people do you place into jobs they love. You place that twice as many people into jobs they love than last quarter, 
amazing, well done. And yes, as a side effect, of course, we'll make money. But uh, we are not fixated on it. Is there any other sort of uh, unusual HR practice there? Another thing which is not unusual to me, but people, but people are telling me that other companies don't do. On, after pro- when the probation period ends, we expect everyone to write a self-evaluation, an open-form essay about their experience uh, in the first uh, few months on the job, describing what they've done, why they've done it, what impact they had, what went well, what went not so well, what they learned, what was different from the expectations, basically whatever. It's just an open, uh, open-form essay to reflect on their probation period. And uh, this is a very useful exercise for uh, them as well as for others. And apparently other companies don't do it, or at least I was told. They share that with the rest of the organization? Yes, it's uh, it's, uh, public and transparent. So can all companies run like this, do you think? Maybe not. So uh, one caveat is that a company culture is set very early on and it's very difficult to change, which which can be a blessing and a curse. If you do it right at the foundation, you'll reap the benefit for years to come and vice versa. You screw something up in the first couple of years and you will feel it for the next five. So changing it is uh, probably difficult. I wouldn't recommend uh, introducing things like setting your own salaries in a company of a uh, hundred employees that never done anything like this. It's probably not going to go well. The second thing is we are doing work which is genuinely fun. We are making the world a better place. We're proud of it. And uh, we fail often and we laugh about it and then we fix it. It's not such a big deal. If I were running a, I don't know, a nuclear facility, I wouldn't be running like this just because the risks are very different. I imagine there are companies uh, that are doing a very different kind of work, which may be, a, I don't know, maybe not as exciting. So maybe not every company can be like this, but we can. And so we are. And along the way, have you tried things that didn't work? Uh, yes, many of them. <laughs> uh, are any of you prepared to share? Yes. Uh, one thing which didn't go well at all is not having clear responsibilities on who should fire people and when. So initially we thought that maybe we shouldn't fire people at all and if something is not going well, uh, the team will give them feedback and they will realize themselves that something is not going right and they will leave themselves. It sounds like a great idea in theory and uh, by the way it's picked up directly from Reinventing Organizations, a book from uh, by Frederick Laloux that uh, really inspired us. But in our experience it led to let's say a psychologically unsafe environment where everyone was really uncomfortable and there was no clear mechanism to uh, resolve it. So it kind of did work in a sense but but today we've got a much clearer idea of how do we ask people to leave and when and uh, we treat this process in a, let's say, in a psychologically safe way. We are doing our best to respect the psychological safety of the departing employees. Something which we didn't always do in the past, trying to be more transparent for the sake of being transparent. And this can be really, really horrible from a psychological perspective. Something which I didn't really appreciate a few years ago. You said you hire for values. Yes. What values are you hiring for? Difficult question. We don't have a short list of values like honesty, integrity or something like this and we don't check against them during the interview. 
Instead, we have an agreed set of behaviors or rather set of priorities of what matters to us in different situations. Like, it really matters to us that everyone has a high degree of uh, autonomy and trust. It really matters to us to do the right thing for uh, the customer over revenue. And in general, we try to be as uh, humane as possible. It uh, matters to us that we are very flexible in how we approach our work and uh, we're trying to do the same for the, our students, our customers. It matters to us that uh, mental health is just as important as physical health and uh, so we're trying to design an environment, a working environment that uh, takes it into account. So in during interviews we try to talk about careers and past experience of candidates and we try to understand the reasons behind them. The most interesting answers come from questions which start with why. Like open-ended questions, uh, you've done that, why? Tell me about your thinking process. Why did you do this and not that? And quite often when we get a very visceral reaction that yes, this person would really fit on this team, we can really see ourselves trusting them a lot, probably have a good candidate. Basically, my point is that it's not, it's not a totally scientific process. We don't have uh, a magic formula or a single a simple questionnaire or anything like this. Yes, there is some structure to uh, our hiring process, but some of the best people I've uh, uh, ever hired gave me a very early on indication, like maybe half an hour into our first interview, that yes, I really want to work with this person. And it's probably as simple as, uh, as this. And do you get involved in all of the hiring? I try to meet everyone who is uh, uh, joining the company. In the last half a year, it may be, uh, as the, basically as the, as the company started to grow, it uh, got reduced to maybe a half an hour chat with a candidate at the later stage. It's highly unlikely that I would veto anyone. I, I trust the team that they know what they're doing but I still like to meet them and they share my feedback uh, with the team. One of the things mm-hmm. that I know you're passionate mm-hmm. about is increasing gender diversity in yes. the tech sector. Oh, yes. Um, what do you think the current situation is? The current situation is uh, going in the right direction, but it's not nearly good enough. The tech industry is still heavily male-dominated, and it's really, really unfortunate because, on one hand, the tech industry is underutilizing well, the talent available in this country. And it also means that the product that are designed are designed by, let's say, mostly male teams, which has unfortunate implications for design decisions. In other words, male-dominated teams tend to design products that work for them. Not on purpose, but just because that's how they see the world. And uh, more diverse teams generally tend to design better products, work better, and the more diverse the talent pool, the bigger it is. And what, in terms of the students mm-hmm. who flow through mm-hmm. the academy, mm-hmm. what what's your what's your gender balance? Uh, on average, it's uh, about thirty five percent. Sometimes it's as high as fifteen some cohorts. Uh, sometimes it's as low as uh, twenty or twenty five. Uh, but on average, historically, it's about thirty five. It's higher than uh, the industry average, but it's still not nearly as good as a fifty fifty split. What can you do to get more students? We've tried quite a few things. Last December, we ran a fellowship that uh, was open to people regardless of their uh, financial background. And uh, our fellows, there were 16, uh, 16 of them uh, from uh, the December fellowship. They are, as expected, a fairly diverse bunch of uh, individuals. We partnered with companies like ThoughtWorks to sponsor uh, women on the course. 
Thoughtworks, for example, uh, supported uh, six amazing, absolutely outstanding women to take Makers Academy course, and all of them got an offer from Thoughtworks to join as a junior developer. We care to use inclusive language in our marketing materials. When we think about how we talk to potential candidates, we try to make sure that our language is uh, inclusive. When we think about students we use um, in our brochures or on our website, we try to make sure that, that they are as diverse as possible. We quite often we profile the, our students on uh, our blog and share their stories. And when a potential candidate comes across a role model they can actually connect to, who tells the story of, I could never see myself as part of the tech industry, but then I became a software developer at the bank, they start thinking, oh, wow, maybe I can do it as well. And all these things help to build a more diverse uh, student body. In terms of the uh, gender pay gap, yeah. do you see your students getting paid differentially? Or do, is it, does it not develop until later in their careers? Last time I tried to measure this number, we're, we're not tracking this number on a month-by-month basis, but uh, I looked into it about a year ago and the difference was uh, minute. It was, okay. it was something like 500 pounds and I don't even remember which way. It sounded like a measurement error, but I will not be surprised if it starts uh, develop later in their careers. Just to your your personal motivation, what what gives you the confidence to make these sort of tough decisions and run the business in such an unusual way? Well, there are a few things here. One is it's not so much about confidence; it's about lack of experience. I started this company essentially having worked in only one other company. So I have, uh, when I started Makers, I had very little idea about how companies should be run in principle. So I didn't really have a playbook of how it should definitely be done, and so I experimented with the ideas. Also, building a startup is hard, and I'd love to have some fun along the way. And this means not focusing on making as much money as possible on a monthly basis, but rather focusing on how do we attract great people? How can we create an environment which is genuinely different? How can we try new things just to see what happens? And when it works, it's uh, absolutely amazing. When my team tells me that they are proud to work at Makers and they like our culture, that's uh, very it's very nice. One very quick story. Someone on my team left a few months ago, half a year ago, to move to a different country. You can't really do much about it, so it was for family reasons, so he moved to a different country, uh, worked there for half a year, and eventually moved back. And he came back and said, hey, I want to join Makers again, and we said, yes, of course, let's, uh, let's have a conversation. And he said that he's so happy to join Makers because the company he was working for in the States had a very different culture, much more, let's say, much less humane. Uh, he felt like he was just a small cog in a big big machine with uh, a target to hit on a monthly basis and it was uh, soul destroying and he said that uh, he wanted to work for us when he came back uh, specifically because of how he felt on while on the team and we are so happy to have him back if you could suggest to people one book that they should read what would it be oh that's a difficult because there are so there are so many good books. I honestly don't think there is a single right one or one that would be helpful to the majority of people. Books are so individual. Something that might just change my entire world may not move you and vice versa. 
Having said that, Ray Dalio's principles should be right. Whether you agree with Ray Dalio on what he is teaching, it doesn't matter. It's very useful to uh, understand his point of view. He's an amazingly successful um, uh, hedge fund manager, and uh, he wrote a book about he, how he runs the business, and it's amazing. I would also recommend uh, reading non-business stuff. Some of the most interesting things I've read which had direct impact on how I run the business were uh, about history, about uh, religion, it was poetry, it was uh, spirituality, it was fiction, things which are not really about the business, but uh, it was really, uh, really helpful. If people want to get a hold of you, uh, where any, should they get any, a hold of you? Anytime. The easiest way is probably on Twitter, at Shachnev, or uh, at my email address, uh, Evgeny at makersacademy.me. Uh, thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. The Melting Pot was hosted by Dominic Monkhouse, and you can find out more about Dom on LinkedIn. Just search for Dominic Monkhouse or his companies, Foundry Media or Foundry 51.